0: This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our retreats and residency programs, visit us online at ZMM.org. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon.
1: Case 260 from the 300 Shobogenzo, 300 Koan Shobo Genzo by Dado, Lori and Kaz This is called Suffering Cannot Reach It, the main case. Monastic asked Kaushan, it is scorching hot now. Where do we go to avoid the heat? Kaushan said, into a pot of boiling water. Or the burning charcoal of a of a furnace hell. The monastic said, "How could you avoid heat there?" Kaushan said, "No suffering can reach there." The monastic was silent. Tadavarcha's commentary: Before it has been seen into, it seems. It all seems like an impenetrable forest of brambles, like a hundred-foot-high wall. When the myriad streams of thought cease and the gap is closed, it becomes clear that from the very beginning, the forest of brambles and the hundred-foot-high wall are nothing but the self. Peaceful dwelling does not require the solitude of the mountains and rivers, When you have extinguished the mind fire, wherever you find yourself, you are standing in the midst of a Buddha field. The capping verse. When one truly sees it, all things are one reality. If you do not, they are separate and different. When you don't see it, all things are one reality. If you do, they are separate and different. So I picked this koan. Uh, First, it's a continuation of um, what I've been talking about throughout Sushen, from the opening talk to the talk yesterday to the talk today, which in a sense is how do you wake up, how do you actually turn the events of your life, what you encounter, the suffering usually, the difficulties, but not always. Sometimes it's the very pleasurable things. Or the most ordinary things. And turn it, turn it into your life. Turn the Dharma into your life. So that it becomes real, so that you become real. And this also seems to fit the times, this Cohen. So the monastic said, It's scorching hot now. Where do we go to avoid the heat? And there's a lot of heat political, environmental, including the heating of our earth, a possible coming pandemic. Aside from the common boiling waters, There's the challenges of job, of relationship, of health, of whatever else you choose to throw into the pot that's boiling. On one hand, we can easily enough get caught up with the anxiety, with the fear, with the flight or fight response, and the endless hold this has on our bearing often. And undoubtedly, we will, to some extent, get caught up in that. On the other hand, we could ignore and be safe in our ignorance at not attending to the increasing heat until we boil. So we come to this practice for answers to the heat. Does this practice have answers? Do you have answers? Do I have answers? Zen doesn't have specific answers to specific questions, the the real questions of your life. It's not designed to tell you what to do. The relationships with Sangha and with teachers are not designed to steer you in response to the specific problems that you have. But there is something much more valuable than a specific answer to a given question, which, after all, would only answer that particular question. What Zen practice does offer, if you're willing to inquire wholeheartedly, is a path that, that offers you insight into every question at its bottom. You yourself, you most personally, have the ability to walk this path and realize for you yourself how to enter, how to be, how to live and die with each condition of our being. In other words, Zen teaches you that the so-called answers to your questions can open a door to being. And that door is fully present at all times. It's never not present. And it's present within you. It's not something outside you, apart from you. The first challenge is, do you wish to open that door? Is that what you want? There's a lot of reasons to do spiritual practice. Sometimes the reason is, I don't know, is where I find myself, and that seems okay. Sometimes the reason is, I want or need something. Sometimes it is an acknowledgement of the subclinical pervasive anxiety that um, seems to always be the white noise and background of our life. Sometimes the reason is a direct relationship with the suffering we see around us, or perhaps inside us. Sometimes we have no idea, just we have to. It's often said that when you look closely enough at the question, you will see into the answer. The question and the answer at a fundamental level are not different. But it takes a huge leap to see that. Uh, As noted numerous times before me, you can't answer fundamental questions from the same reference system that the question arises from. Because there's something in the reference system that makes you blind to the inquiry itself. Fundamental questions. It's just the way it is. If you could, there probably wouldn't be a a real question. We could figure it all out. So, our reference system is our self. And so, from our self, you can't see into yourself. There's a lot of semi cliches about that. The eye cannot see the eye. You can look at it from the eyeball, not being able to see this eyeball. You can also look at it from, I, me, can't see me. Not really. The first noble truth is that life is dukkha. This is. But do we really understand? Have we really looked closely at this truth? can we see that there will never be an end to the problems of life? Um, That it's built into the relativity of our mind, our body, and being alive, and in, in the inevitability of our death, of sickness, of old age, if we live long enough, in the inevitability of Everyone's death, everyone's sickness and old age, if they live long enough. So it's built in. and there's there's, you know, an interesting friction between that built-inness level of anxiety that comes out of that and our deep humanness, our deep heartness, our deep fullness. Which is not born and does not die, and even when that's realized in a relative sense, we're going to die, we're going to be sick. But seeing to what that sickness is from the perspective of ourself, there is no one who will ever be sick, no one who will ever be who will die. How do you? How does this not? strike us as just verbiage. I mean, in my earliest naive years of reading about Zen before I was practicing, you know, I took the admonition that if you die before you die, you will not die when you die, which is a famous Rinzai saying. And intellectually, I knew that wasn't literally true. But somehow, I thought it was literally true. And in a sense, it is literally true. If you see into the birthlessness and deathlessness of this very moment of your being, then there is no problem, even when there are problems. And there are always problems. You've, I'm sure, I think I actually said this story recently, uh, of the farmer who came to the Buddha and you know, listed some, sometimes the story is told as 88 problems, sometimes 99 problems, and, you know, kind of ran through their checklist of problems, asking for help for each one, and for none of them could the Buddha offer anything. And uh, finally, the farmer said, Well, in an exasperation, uh, then what's the good of all your teachings? You know? you can't solve any of my problems. And the Buddha said, my teachings can't help you with the 99 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 100th. Oh, well, what's the 100th problem? Well, the 100th problem is not wanting to have any problems. And that's exactly the difference between spiritual practice and spiritual practice in its most hardy and well-developed sense rather than a spiritual practice that's based on addressing a sense of not wanting to have any problems and um, what I call fixing, making it right so that acceptable to me and I can let go of my baggage around it. I want to make it right. Now, there's nothing wrong with making it right, and we need to do that, and we're skilled pretty well at it. And there are large numbers of professionals who are available to help us make it right. As I sometimes say, I note that those professionals are probably the most represented profession in Zen practice. And they wonder why that is. Uh, That's interesting to me. So we really don't wish to have any problems, and that's a a normal human response to challenge. Um, You know, we talk about um, microaggressions. Um, the most common microaggression I encounter is uh, the one I have towards myself when there's a problem and I'm annoyed by it Um, and it's usually something really really stupid you know I turn on the hot water and it's the cold water you know something like that and I get annoyed (laughs) Um, and You know, that's one kind of, in a sense, stupid, but real problem that that as we go through life, we get annoyed by so many little things. Um, And if it's not easily solvable, um, we want a simple fix. And if we can't find that, then we really define it as a problem. In this practice, we often speak of problems as opportunities for practice, of seeing something about ourselves, our understanding of our own mind, and the cultivation of the qualities within us, the cultivation, which I've been speaking of through ethicist Shen also that allow us to be better problem solvers. That's often what we understand spiritual practice to be, better at fixing our feelings or what is annoying us or what is a, a major, quote, problem before us. And this is a good thing. But there's always more. And, you know, it's worth thinking that about that there will never be a time where we'll we will not have feelings, at least some of the time, that make us uncomfortable or hurt or deeply affect us. And usually all of those things to one degree or another. That time will never come. And our sensitivity the spiritual sense to these problems, the kind of problems that are real and deep, the pain that you feel or others feel, is a treasure. But there's a tendency for it to be, to reflect back onto ourself and to take it up as my problem, even though what the problem is defined as is not directly mine, but I'm feeling it as my problem. And these kinds of things don't lend themselves to fixing because it's built into life. You know, the immense suffering that's happening overtly in this world of refugees and what happens to them, particularly the women, but not exclusively, the children, the men, the wars. The challenges that are slowly but really gathering steam around climate change. That is, in my belief, inevitable. I mean, the big challenges. I'm not talking about the rhetoric. I'm talking about countries underwater about land disappearing, that people live on, about the disappearance of creatures and plants and humans, and the effect that I'm convinced is happening, because we know so little about this, of tipping points, catastrophic tipping points within climate change, where things just, we ain't putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And I think that's already happened. I have that particular view. Um, And yet, there's nothing different here that hasn't been going on for human beings since there have been human beings. I mean, if you just look historically, you can see where cultures and many beings have disappeared Did they migrate? Did they die? Did war happen? We're sometimes not sure. Um, And we're part of that history. So, there's a real problem here in being a human being. And interestingly enough, spiritual practice... Makes us much more sensitive to being a human being. So the real problem is that we are a human being. We sit right on the edge of these two perspectives. The, we call it the absolute and the relative. We call it being a human being. And being a human being, a true person of no rank, And that edge is the reality of who we are, both aspects. We will live and die and encounter problems and challenges. And we are birthless and deathless. And when we cultivate a mind that is not born and does not die, insight into that mind... then we're both ultra-sensitive to the suffering of life and not caught by it. How is that possible? So a monastic asked Kaushan, it is scorching hot now. Where can we go to avoid the heat? Kaushan, a very famous master, one of the founders of the Soto sect, China. Kasha said, into a pot of boiling water, or the burning charcoal of a furnace hell, or into global warming, or into a Trump re election fight, or pick your poison, pick your burning hell or into my best friend's suffering, or into a sangha member dealing with serious illness, or into my exhaustion, or my pain, or my fear. We all know that Zen practice asks us not to separate us from what seems to be outside us. But how? How do we actually do that? Let's look at the footnotes that Daito Roshi attached to this koan and see if that points a bit to how. A monastic asks Kaushan, It's scorching hot out now. Where do we go to avoid the pain? Where do we go to avoid the pain? You know, this is really the essential question of Zen. This is it. First noble truth is life is this. How do we address it? Now, the monastic's putting it in a specific way. How do we avoid it? And that's quite revealing. The footnote says this is not a question about seasons. It's not about how hot it is. It's much deeper than that, it's much more pervasive than that. It's truly a question about you. How do you understand yourself? Your way of living. What is your accustomed way of avoiding the heat because it's really hot outside? Your manner of being when change occurs or when what happens is what you don't like. And change is always occurring. It's never not occurring. We'd be immediately dead. That's when change stops. Shan said, so again the question is, where can we go to avoid the heat? Shan said, into a pot of boiling water, of the burning charcoal of a furnace hell. That or if she says something very interesting. He says, No one in the world can ever find this place. Why does he say that? What is being pointed to? I mean, it would seem obvious these places are widely available. I named them, you can name them. What's the perspective that no one in the world can ever find this place? Is he wrong? Is he just making a comment that seems kind of clever and zenny? Is there a reality to this? this is, is there a truth to it that's functional in our life? Look at the wording here. No one in the world can ever find this place. There's a couple of things going on in that sentence. So simple, so clear. The monastic said, how can you avoid heat there? Again, that's in response to into into the pot of boiling water or the burning charcoal of a furnace hell. How can you avoid? I mean, you're going right into it. And Dada Roshi comments, this is not a place of yin or yang. Not a place of this or that. Not a place of in or out. It's not a place where we change something, a feeling, into another thing, another feeling. It's not a place where we change sickness into health or tiredness into feeling energetic and buoyant. So the monastic had said, how can you avoid the heat there? And Kaushan says, no suffering can reach there. How come? No suffering can reach there. Dato says, rather than give the body relief, give relief to the mind. Suffering can only exist if we have a mind of suffering. I remember, as before, I'd I'd begun sitting on my own, but not formal practice, but kind of stumbling around, as sometimes we do when we encounter Zazen. I had read The Three Pillars of Zen, but it wasn't connected. It wasn't a cohesive thing for me. I was just trying to find my way and um, I was in Michigan at the time in the winter and if you've ever had the pleasure of being in Michigan in the winter I remember that winter I may be off by a day or two but there was something like 73 consecutive days where it snowed a quarter inch and the sun never appeared never didn't see it wasn't there And uh, I was working 100 hours a week as I was in my medical residency. Um, You know, (laughs) there wasn't much left of me. (laughs) And I remember walking out, and it was snowing, raining, drizzling. I was tired and miserable. And um, my partner, who many of you know, uh, looked at me, and she said, you must—I forget exactly what she said—but you must be miserable, terrible. Yeah. And something happened. It's kind of—I don't want to compare it to the Buddha's moment when he realized in the field, because <laughs> I am not the Buddha <laughs> in that sense, at least. But something happened as you know the rain is and snow is dripping down my forehead. I had a full head of hair and a beard, Um, and, uh, you know, the raccoon eyes that we see in the monastics at Ango goes, and, you know, just dragging my ass. And something happened. And I, I can't connect it to what that was, but I realized in that moment I was free. It was raining, it was, and it wasn't even that it was fine that I was soaked and raining and miserable and etc. something far more subtle than that, something that I realize I now say it intellectually, but I, I couldn't have said it intellectually then, that no matter what the external conditions were, I was fine. And the external conditions, trust me, were miserable. (laughs) But uh, I was fine. And having not really practiced, I then said something to my partner. And she said, well, if you're so free, why don't you, you know, clean the toilets or something like that? (laughs) Uh, Well deserved. Um, Anyway. Um, that, that epiphany was important to me it showed me something about the possibilities it wasn't uh, an awakening it was just there was something much more going on than my own mind than my own usual mind um, and that was there and I don't know where that came from I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Zen and practice and uh, so on and so forth. Um, but it was just a, a moment of clarity that deeply affected me. It was only looking back now and saying this that I realized how deeply it affected me and how that gave me a moment, a, a way to trust something in me that I really didn't, and I hadn't experienced before, really didn't know before. about a possibility, uh, a way of being. Um, And although that moment passed, and then I was miserable and it's raining, (laughs) I remembered it. I do remember it. So Kaoshan says, no suffering can reach there. And Daito says, rather than give the body relief, give relief to the mind. And I said, suffering can only reach there if we have a mind of suffering. Well, what is a mind of suffering? What is that? We talk about duality all the time. But it's a, it's like a code word. And so we can explain it. It's experiencing things from a dualistic perspective, two things or more. So me here, the rain dripping down my forehead out there, a sense of separation. You heard Yunnan this morning encourage us to do what we all know to do in work practice, to put ourselves into it. But, of course, that's dualistic, right? We're putting ourself into it. So we also speak of forgetting the self. That when we are so willing in our zazen to enter it, to actually enter it in a way that we put all of our awareness and attention, and I don't mean this way, but in a gentle Bottomless way of willingness to be this breath, to be this moment of awareness without any effort. You know, at the bottom of Zazen is no effort, no effort whatsoever. And yet, there has to be a willingness. We can't do it. So, there has to be a willingness to face ourselves in such a way that that can happen without us doing anything. And I, I don't have the proper words to instruct me or you how to do that. I wish I knew. I actually don't wish I because I knew, no, that would not be it. <laughs> so we have to each find our way, which is the the wonder of this practice. We have to each struggle with ourself, with our zazen, with our separation, using the code word duality, a distance from ourself. And all we have to do there is ourself and our suffering. That's all we have. There's, there's nothing else. That's what we have. We have our self. And embedded in that self is a desire to wake up. We may or may not have encountered that in us, but it's there. As a human being, it comes as part of the standardized equipment in your particular model. Oh, I forget. When God was handing out that standardized equipment and He came to me, He left it out. Or she came to me, or they came to me. He left it out. Oh, I'm sorry. It's hidden, it's there. And we will, as human beings, live and move from a dualistic perspective. Sometimes there is suffering. And knowing this and appreciating our humanness and our sensitivities, we can suffer. And with that, arises in that suffering the possibility of freedom from suffering. So we have to take the feelings of pain and distance and struggle, which is just energy. It may not feel like energy. It may feel like the opposite of energy. But it's energy. You wouldn't feel it. And use it in a way that helps us. So even when we are suffering, we can forbear That's my understanding of the parameter of patience. We can, doesn't mean to tolerate, doesn't mean to put up with, means to be present with in such a fundamental way of acceptance and love that there is forbearance, there is being with a situation that may hurt. But it is being with the situation. And so subtly, we want to not be in that situation. So subtly, we want something else other than what is present. That's the definition of something. Anybody know what that's the definition of? Anybody? I'm asking. Anybody know what that's the definition of? Delusion. It's the definition of delusion. Wanting something else other than what is present. So consider what it would be to be fully present with what is present. I mean, in the simplest sense, I mean, everybody who does the shin knows that because at some point, I mean, I've known a couple of people for whom this wasn't this analogy isn't true, but for the rest of us, uh, at some point we physically hurt. Uh, <laughs> I've told this story before. Jiman uh, is uh, Shrieked Moshi's uh, significant other of a long term, and she's got a perfect, biomechanically perfect body. As someone who studied biomechanics, I can testify to that. And she was a world-class dancer, one of the top dancers in the world. She's built for it. And I once heard her say uh, that in Ruhatsu Sushin, which is the Sashin that we have that celebrates the birth of the, the enlightenment of the Buddha in December, and we sit longer and it's uh, more, more intensive, and we sit later and later into the night. And uh, she once said... Even I hurt sometimes in Brahatsu Sushant. And I didn't believe her. I think she was just saying that because so many people were hurting that she was, you know, for the sake of all beings saying that. But for the rest of us. (laughs) um, And for her as well. Uh, Suffering finds us. So now what will you do? Pain, discomfort, depression, struggle, tiredness, anxiety. What will you do? That's the question. No suffering can reach there. That or she says, rather than give the body relief, give relief to the mind. It's not setting up two things here. He's pointing to practice. Do you understand that when we practice, we're practicing delusion? That's what we're practicing. <laughs> that, From a realized perspective, there is no practice. So we practice delusion. That's what we got. It's enough. It's plenty. And we don't need anything else. It's more than we need. So let's be willing to do that. We don't have to be eager. We just have to forbear in the largest, deepest sense of that word be with with the circumstances to such an extent that there's nothing to say about ourselves. No suffering can reach there. The monastic remained silent that where she's known as duh. <laughs> Eyes wide open, mouth a gap. The monastic wants to figure it out. I mean, you know, spiritual bypassing is interesting. You know, that's and inevitable and, you know, happens. All the time when something is pointed at and the student stops and you can see the mind whirling, going, trying to place it within the place. And uh, it takes practice, it takes delusion, painful delusion, to just be, to just listen, to just be with ourselves, to just be with everything we're feeling. The commentary, before it has been seen, it all seems like an impenetrable forest of brambles, like a hundred foot high wall. When the myriad streams of thought cease and the gap is closed, it becomes clear that from the very beginning, the forest of brambles and the hundred foot high pole of wall were nothing but the self. Peaceful dwelling does not require the solitude of mountains and rivers. When you have extinguished the mind fire, wherever you may find yourself, you're standing in the midst of a Buddha field. So before it has been seen into, it seems like an impenetrable forest of brambles, like a hundred foot high wall. And that's our mind. That's the way our mind is. It's, it produces impenetrable problems that we can't fix. What use is your teaching? You can't fix my my problems. Our mind is confused by the reality we're experiencing. It's what is our mind? It's a mind of thoughts about things. The emphasis is on about. It's not the things. You know, there's koans that are just like this. And this that I'm about to say Are you depressed? Bring me your depression. Are you fearful? Bring me your fear. Are you exhausted? Bring me your exhaustion. If you sit with those things, whatever it is, fill in the blank for yourself. Are you confident and cocky? Bring me your confidence. doesn't matter what it is. When you say you are this, you are denying the reality of who you are. Okay. We do that all the time. Bring it forth. Find it. Search exhaustively for it. Don't, don't give yourself clever answers. Don't stop at any point bring it forth so it's crystal clear, so everybody in this room can see it. When the mind's wrapped up in itself, when it's mired in the stream of endless thinking about something, then there's no way out. It's locked in. When the myriad streams of thought cease and the gap is closed, it becomes clear that from the very beginning, the forest and brambles and the hundred-foot-high wall are nothing but the self. That's what you'll find. You'll find ideas, which is the self. And if you let go of those ideas and search further, what will you find? What will you actually find? And I'm challenging you that wherever you're facing what seems impossible to face, find it. Bring it forth. Find it at the bottom. I'm not interested in some clever or subtle way of declaring yourself beyond that. Do we forget the teachings that there is no self, no self that could be apprehended? Did you forget to question carefully, intently, how a problem that seems apart from us, outside us, cannot be outside us? So that's the inquiry. There's nothing wrong with this. This is what it means to practice. But don't forget. We're creating the problem. Reality is just reality. There's nothing more to say about it. It's not bad. It's not good. It's whole. It's complete. And within it then, wholeness and completeness is a goodness that doesn't belong to bad or good. Peaceful dwelling does not require the solitude of mountains and rivers. And that's interesting. Peaceful dwelling is what Ango is, which we'll enter tomorrow. And it doesn't require the solitude of mountains and rivers, which is the sutra study. So it's perfect. It's not limited to mountains and rivers. Of course, you can flip that. Mountains and rivers are not limited either. When you have extinguished the mind fire, wherever you may find yourself, you are standing in the midst of a Buddha field. How do you extinguish the mind fire? Don't be fooled here. There's no permanent extinguishing of a relative self until you die. So we're alive. So extinguishing the mind fire means seeing through it, completely through it. It doesn't mean abolishing it doesn't mean making it some other thing. It means seeing it for what it is. That's the extinguishing. Seeing it for what it truly is. And what you'll see is that you're standing in the midst of a Buddha field. You've always been and always will be. And yes, there's plenty of suffering in this world. Endless. That's the first truth. But the realization that you are standing in a Buddha field means you are empowered as you, you, your humanness, to do something about it. Starting with yourself. Starting with your own habits of mind. Starting with your own, what I call, crazinesses. And I'm not excluded from that. Nobody's excluded from that. We all have a self in that way. So I often speak of turning everything, every challenge, of our practice to the Dharma. What do I mean by that? We live in this relative world of suffering, of problems, of difficulties, of endless perspectives. And those perspectives encourage us to always seek what feels good, and to point out what the endless bad, usually about ourselves, but sometimes about others. That relative world directs us to be me-minded, me-minded, spiritually speaking. Fundamentally, though, we're whole. It can't be like that. It isn't like that. And so when we turn to the Dharma, the teachings, we turn in the specifics, to the completeness of liturgy, the creativity inherent in our being. We turn to each other in relationship. Turn towards a practice of being Buddha nature, actually practicing. That's what we're practicing. We're practicing being who we are. That's what we're doing here. We don't think of it in those terms, and it won't help to think of it in those terms, but you should know that's what we're practicing, being a Buddha. So you, you actualize our Buddhahood by practicing actualizing our Buddhahood. As the monastic, as Dado said about the monastic, duh, of course, persistent little bugger <laughs> and so the the challenges and problems are present but what name could you fix them with the capping verse When you truly see it, all things are one reality. If you do not, they are separate and different. This is originally from Mumon. Mumon flips it. When you don't see it, all things are one reality. If you do, they're separate and different. What's being said here? When you truly see it, there's just this whole reality. There's nothing outside it. And there are no problems. There are problems. But those problems are no problems. So I'm using words here in a particular way. Because you've truly seen it. If you do not see it, they're separate and different. Everything is messed up and apart and a problem. Problem. When you don't see it, all things are one reality. And what's that one reality? It sucks. That's the one reality that you're looking at. Every place I look, there's problems. If you do, they are separate. If you do see it, they are separate and different. Each thing shines in its wholeness, in its completeness. Each individual from the tiniest to the largest thing is whole and complete. Start with yourself.
0: Thanks for listening. Do you have physical challenges to visiting Zen Mountain Monastery or Fire Lotus Temple? The Diamond Net is a group of Mountains and Rivers Order students who are available to support your practice. We provide Dharma and other support to Sangha members facing life challenges such as illness or mobility issues. If you would like to visit the monastery or the Zen Center but need some physical help, someone from the Diamond Net can assist you. For information, email diamondnet at mro.org or visit our webpage at zmm.org and look under the Programs menu.